Uh, we're going to start the show by speaking to our friends from 4SA. Uh, the Freedom of Religion South Africa is a legal advocacy organization which works to protect and promote your constitutional right to religious freedom in South Africa. I've had the good uh, pleasure of partnering with them for a number of years now. And this morning we're joined by our friend Michael Swain, who is the executive director of 4SA. He studied law abroad and has been successful in business and is the co-founder of the His People Every Nation Church Movement in South Africa and he joins us from I'm guessing sunny Cape Town this morning because Cape Town always is sunny isn't it Michael? Sunny and windy, but beautiful. Thank you, Martin. <laughs> Sunny morning. and windy. That's good just good to, morning, yeah. that's just good to, morning to your listeners. That's just <laughs> to even it out, else, uh, else it would be paradise. I mean, uh, it really is a beautiful part of the world. Michael, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I, you know, as we kind of roll into December, um, I've realized from your last correspondence that 4SA doesn't sleep because um, the craziness and the nuttiness of what happens in the world doesn't sleep and you're engaged in an ongoing and rolling conversation between the church and the state. And so this morning, can we talk a little bit about the draft sexual orientation and gender identity guidelines, which have been drawing a lot of media attention from various political parties over the last while? Um, and for those who are unaware of what is going in, could you fill in some of the blanks? Yes, thank you, Mark. So these guidelines have been developed by the Department of Basic Education within uh, a department actually within the Department of Basic Education. And there are actually two sets. The one starts with teacher guidelines and uh, teaching materials and um, general uh, activities and so on from what they call early childhood development, which is ages zero to say seven. And then there are another set of guidelines which take you right the way through uh, school to matric. Yeah. And the problem with these guidelines is quite simple. They, they, they've set out to obviously say that we need to be uh, understanding and, and, and particularly sensitive towards um, you know, gender in our schools. And one of the examples they gave, for, for instance, was that a lot of women don't become CEOs of major companies and that type of thing. So in, in a sense, you would expect them to, you know, make sure that there was definitely, um, you know, positivity towards the role of women in society and their capabilities. And also that, you know, it, we mustn't be stereotyped. So it would be not abnormal for a man to say be a nurse and it shouldn't be abnormal for a woman to be the, the CEO of a mining company. In other words, you know, break down the stereotypes by all means. But Unfortunately, uh, as is, is the case in this instance, there is a very strong, seemingly ideological background to these materials. Um, and, and, they, and they take on essentially uh, the kind of unfortunate um, transgenderism ideology seems to be infusing these uh, because they essentially are saying that you know, gender and biological sex are divorced from one another. So instead of male and female binary, gender is seen as fluid. So for example, simply because you have the physical characteristics or biological makeup of a boy or a girl, doesn't necessarily mean that you in fact are one. And these materials assume that this ideology is an accepted and scientific norm and factual norm, whereas in fact it is uh, highly contested and deeply controversial within the medical community. So th th this will 
fundamentally impact the environment of the schools. Um, and there are some very specific examples that I, I think would be useful for uh, people to hear when it comes to the types of things, particularly that we're going to look at maybe the early childhood development, the type of things that teachers will be essentially telling um, very, very young children. Uh, I mean, it is troubling, and we've been seeing this battle raging overseas for quite a while now. Um, but, Michael, I do realize that um, 4SA is a, a legal advocacy group. You guys do take a look at in terms of the the, the principles, the legal principles that are involved in the matter. Um, so from that perspective, what, what are the main kind of legal points that we ought to be looking at here? Well, obviously, first and foremost, the constitutional legal principle is that everything must be in the best interests of the child. The interests of the child are paramount. And, uh, of course, very importantly, um, parents are recognized in international law, in South African law, as well as in the DBE's own policy uh, as the child's primary caregivers and best place to determine the child's best interests. So, you know, parental rights are absolutely key. And when you have potentially teaching which would contradict what many parents may be teaching or bringing up their children with them, because parents are allowed uh, in law. Uh, in fact, it is your inalienable right, according to the Department of Basic Education's own policy, that's their wording, uh, to raise your children according to your own values. Uh, if teachers are then coming in and potentially contradicting that or doing things which would undermine that, then that, of course, is a, a, a very serious legal issue because what you're doing is you're undermining the parents' rights over their own children. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks Thanks for raising that and thanks for being clear on that, uh, Michael. Um, I, I mean, in terms, does the Department of Education have the authority even to uh, implement these guidelines? Well, no, they don't uh, in, in, in a nutshell. Um, you know, public schools, and there's been a, a case that we were involved with uh, some couple of years ago now called the Oh God case, which basically says that public schools must be ideologically neutral spaces. Yes. In other words, the state cannot adopt or support or enforce one particular belief system, uh, because in so doing, you would potentially override and overrule uh, the religious freedom rights of thoughts and belief and opinion and conscience and religion of the learners. And of course, in very early years, um, the interests of, of those children are obviously vested in their parents. And so, no, they, they, they cannot do that. And that's why, by the way, school governing bodies play such a critical role, mm. uh, particularly in this instance. These are guidelines. In other words, they're not formal policy. And therefore, no school has to accept them. Now, often what happens when these things get rolled out is there's almost pressure to accept them. But I think it's very important that uh, school bodies, uh, governing bodies, people who are on those bodies who are listening, know that, no, they do not have to accept these. They are guidelines and guidelines only. Uh, and, and, of course, if you're a parent and you're not on a school governing body, well, then if you're not happy with this type of thing, then you need to make sure that your school governing body does know about them and is aware, perhaps, of your viewpoints regarding them. Mm. You mentioned that there were a couple of examples as to why the guidelines might be problematic a little bit early in the interview, Michael. Do you want to go into a little bit of detail in terms of some of those examples? 
Yes, well, if you look at the early childhood development uh, guidelines, which is called All Are Welcome, uh, this is a teacher manual uh, that goes beyond the theoretical. Um, it advertises itself as a practical guide for teachers and practitioners in South Africa. Uh, but let me give you an example. So on page 41, uh, under the subheading Use Gender Inclusive Language, that's obviously an instruction to teachers, uh, the following statement is made. Growing, in growing up, many of us were taught that if you were identifying a single person by a pronoun, you had to use he or she. They was only for groups of people. Those rules have changed, and they or them is now a non-binary way to address somebody. Uh, another statement on the same page reads, we cannot assume someone's gender identity just by looking at them. Now, of course, you know, th th this is problematic for a number of reasons. You know, many children will have been taught by their parents that gender is binary and that in the vast majority of cases, you can assume someone's gender by their physical and biological appearance. I mean, this has been you know, the case from literally all of evolutionary uh, history. Um, and, and of course, a, a, if a teacher then contradicts this, then they're stepping over the border of just teaching what is factual. They're now teaching values and ideology, and they're potentially overriding parental rights and deeply confusing the child. Uh, and again, to claim uh, for a teacher to claim that the basic uh, grammar in the use of pronouns has changed, well, this is far from generally accepted. Uh, in fact, interesting, I, I heard in East London this uh, week that there was a day when learners were told to wear a label with their preferred pronouns. And, you know, that sort of thing potentially, again, constitutionally, could amount to forced speech, uh, which is a major issue since many people, of course, do not believe that your sex is based upon your personal choice or opinion. And they certainly should not be forced to affirm uh, something that they believe to be untrue. Now, they may choose to do so out of respect, and that's a different story altogether. Um, but again, issues where people are put into a position in a public school context, whereby they may have to do things that they are deeply uncomfortable with or which contradict what they believe, that is not something which should be encouraged at all in the public school system. So, Michael, I, I, you've taken a different angle um, in terms of the start of the interview to to kind of what I assumed, because I, I've been following the story uh, online over the past, I, I think, about two weeks. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure if it's been in the mix for that long. Um, but but really, the, the headlines anyway have been around uh, the Department of Basic Education and a call. I think it's in the Western Cape. Um, uh, that's where it initiated um, regarding unisex uh, toilet facilities. Obviously, a very controversial topic. Um, what's Foyce's view on that? Well, I, th I think what I've been explaining in this interview to date is that it is definitely just the tip of the iceberg. It goes way beyond just unisex toilets, and yes. that's part of yes. it, of course. Yeah. Um, but again, and I think it's good to just step back and, and say that, that nobody should be unfairly discriminated against, and the constitutional rights of all learners must be respected and protected. Mm. And there are certainly uh, those young people who believe that they are different from their biological gender. And, you know, th those rights should be respected, that, that, that those children are, are often deeply troubled. And in that instance, of course, a girl who believes he's a boy or a boy who believes he's a girl may feel very uncomfortable if they're restricted to some sex-segregated toilet for boys or girls. But, you know, again, if, if it's a boy, a girl who 
is just simply just going to what she believes is the girl's bathroom may feel equally uncomfortable uh, seeing somebody who has the biological anatomy of a boy uh, if that boy has unrestricted access to, to share uh, such a sex-segregated toilet, which is normally for girls, and vice versa. So, again, in this instance, we believe that the legal principle that applies is one of reasonable accommodation, even if the state has to take extra measures, um, if they're not too or unduly burdensome, so that everybody can allow these rights. And we believe that a reasonable compromise would be having single access unisex toilets uh, for the use of all learners. And particularly that would accommodate those who may not feel comfortable sharing a toilet space with those of their own biological sex. That, that would be a reasonable compromise. I don't think that's what, um, when I read some of the uh, other commentary, that that's what uh, the, these guidelines would like to see. I think that they want to basically uh, put forward a proposition that if you believe that you're a boy, um, or if you believe that you're a girl and you are a boy, then you can use whatever bathroom you you, you want to. And again, that's where we think you know privacy issues, uh, e e even personal safety issues, uh, come into play, and that needs to be very seriously uh, considered uh, within this whole debate. You know, Michael, it is so complex, even having the conversation and thinking through it, I, I, I do realize very complex from an educator's perspective, very complex in terms of you guys engaging um, with the state, uh, complex for churches to think through and to give guidance um, uh, to their people. So thank you so much for highlighting it. What, what are some of the next steps that people can take? Um, how can parents and those who are concerned on this particular issue and these the, this kind of ambient of issues, um, how can they have their say? Well, obviously people are, are very troubled by this, um, parents particularly. I, I know that there's a petition that's been doing the rounds and it's, I think, garnered nearly 100,000 uh, signatures at this point. Unfortunately, that has no value whatsoever when it comes to uh, a formal engagement. Um, but it is perhaps an indication of the level of uh, concern that parents have. Mm. So we're engaged with the DBE on this matter, and we will obviously continue to do so. They have promised us that there will be a public participation process that they will publish formally, they will gazette effectively uh, these guidelines, these materials. And at that point, uh, parents and others will be able to have their say. And we do believe that when you do have the opportunity, as we've often said, in our democratic society to have your say, please have your say. And if you're not happy with it, then obviously make sure that your voice is heard because the more voices, uh, the louder the voice becomes. So that's gonna let, take place almost uh, certainly not before uh, the beginning of 2023. And we will certainly uh, keep uh, everyone informed. And if you want, by the way, to uh, follow this as it unfolds, please do go to uh, the forsa.org.za website uh, or Freedom of Religion SA Facebook page or our YouTube channel. We're starting to do uh, short YouTube clips because people, we, we realize, prefer to, to watch than to read. Um, so we're doing kind of weekly updates as well, which we're putting on our YouTube channel. Oh, that's that's excellent, Michael. And th thanks for pointing people uh, to the YouTube resource. Um, you guys really do do great work. Let me take the opportunity of pointing people to your website, www.org. 
4SA, that's F-O-R-S-A dot org dot Z-A. And there people can subscribe to your guys' newsletter. There is um, links to all the various different issues that are happening on a banner right on the front page. Um, and you have a number of um, videos uh, where you and Daniela talk about uh, kind of like recent uh, engage on, on recent issues. Um, you do a really good job on that site. So thanks for all that you do, Michael. And uh, I really do enjoy talking to you each week. Uh, informative conversations, helpful to help people process what's happening in the world around them. So thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Great pleasure. Always wonderful to be on the show. Every blessing, brother. Cheers.